Take your Bibles this morning. Turn to the book of Matthew. Matthew chapter 24. And we'll be looking at verses 36 through to the end of the chapter. The anytime return of Christ. Now, whenever we think of Bible prophecy, one question always comes up sooner or later. When? When is Jesus coming back? In fact, I got an email from someone this week that asked me just that question. No matter what else people want to know, it always comes back to the question of timing. How close are we to the second coming? Do you think these are the last days in which we live? Could the rapture happen soon? And how do the recent world events fit into the bigger picture of the end times? Now these are fair questions and I can't blame anyone for asking them because I would ask them myself. You can hardly study the passages like Matthew 24 and 25 without wondering just how near and how far we are, we may be from the return of Jesus Christ. And certainly the events of September 11th, even though they're quite a few years ago now, it seems like uh, for some, uh, it's just like yesterday. But in even thinking about the recent events in the Middle East make us all realize how unstable the world situation is, how quickly things can change for us. And so it's a fair question, and it's not a question just for 21st century Bible students. The disciples had the same question. When shall these things be? The disciples asked this some 2,000 years ago when Christ first gave the Olivet Discourse, two days before His crucifixion. And despite his answer, which was basically, you can't know the time, so you must be ready at all times, they never stopped wondering about it. In fact, the last recorded question ever asked Jesus dealt with the time question. You find it in chapter 1 of Acts, Lord, wilt thou at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel? And just a few seconds later, Jesus would ascend into heaven and has not been seen on earth since. And I find it striking and instructive, I believe, that the disciples never lost their interest in the time question. You can hardly blame them for asking that question. After all they had been through with with Jesus It was perfectly reasonable that they would wonder just when he would establish his kingdom and when he would begin to rule over Israel from David's throne in Jerusalem. Now, if they wanted to know when would these things be, I don't think it's wrong for us to want to know either. But we must also notice what Jesus answered there in verse 7. It is not for you to know 
the times or the seasons which the Father hath put in his own power. I want you to notice that phrase there. It is not for you to know. Now, while that may seem like a kind of a gentle put down, and perhaps it really is, but uh, it's also a reminder that some things simply are not revealed to us, no matter how much we ask or beg or plead or pray. The future is hidden in the heart and the mind of God, and He does not reveal the future unless He chooses to do so. And this is also Jesus' words here that give us a reassuring note that the future will not happen kind of in a willy-nilly way or contrary to certain modern theologians who claim God does not know or ordain the future. It's not in a a kind of a chaotic way, but they are in His own power or His fixed divine authority. And so the truth looks like this. God knows the future because He has ordained the future. God reveals the existence of certain future events. That's what we call Bible prophecy. God chooses not to reveal the timing of those future events. And no matter how many times we may ask the question, God's answer is always the same. It is not for you to know. And what is left for us to know as much as we can know and trust God for the rest. The perspective comes through clearly in Matthew chapter 24. And in verses 32 and 33, Jesus twice says, You know, referring to the signs of the times. And when we see the things that Jesus prophesied, we can know it, that is, His coming, is at hand or it's near. But in verse 36, he warns us that no one knows the day or the hour of his coming. And he says it very explicitly in verse 42. Watch therefore, for ye know not what hour your Lord doth come. Now some readers may see a contradiction here. Twice Jesus says, you know. Once he says, no one knows. And once again, he says, you do not know. So which is it? Do we know or do we not know? Well, the answer, of course, is yes. We know some things, and we don't know other things. We know the signs of the times. That means we can study the course of this age and see the signs mentioned earlier in this chapter. But as we uh, observe the tempo of events across the centuries, we can reasonably conclude that this age is building to a climax that the coming of Christ is drawing near. And the generation living in the final days will come to a settled assurance about some things that other generations will not have. But when all is said and done, we are still making some guesses and some inferences as we study the course of history, as we attempt to read the signs as they multiply around us. We do not know and cannot know the exact time of the Lord's return. All speculations in that area are useless and are often spiritually dangerous. And we can summarize these in three simple statements. Jesus is coming again. We can't be certain when He will return. We should always be ready because He may come at any moment. 
Now, maybe when you were in school, did your teacher ever give you a pop quiz? You know what a pop quiz is? That means the teacher, you come to class and the teacher says, take out a half sheet of paper, a number it from 1 to 10, and I'm going to ask you some questions. You said, this is a test. I don't know. I didn't study. Sometimes college teachers like to do this. Maybe a college course teacher announces that his grading plan is this way. Your entire grade will be determined by a series of pop quizzes. I can't tell you when or how many pop quizzes there will be. I may give you one every week or I may skip four weeks and then I'll give you five in a row. And since you don't know when or how many I'll give, you must come to class always ready for a pop quiz. Those dirty teachers, they always have it out for us. I know, I was one. And if you're always ready, you'll get a good grade, no matter how many pop quizzes. Now, when you think about the second coming, we ought to adopt maybe the Boy Scout motto, be prepared. Jesus is coming. No one knows the day or the hour, so be ready. Be prepared. Live as, as, as if he might be today, and be glad when you see him when he comes. Now, we face two dangers whenever we talk about the second coming. We face the danger of becoming more concerned about the date and the signs than we do about his return. We face the danger of ignoring the truth of the second coming and living as though he will never return. And I don't really know which is worse. But once again, the Lord is specifically speaking about his return after the tribulation in this particular passage and not the rapture. And yet, at the same time, there are lessons we can learn about from this passage that apply to us as we await the Lord's return coming for us in the clouds. In our text, Jesus gives us four truths about the timing of his return. And each one teaches us something important about how we are to live as we wait for Christ to return. Number one, we cannot know the precise moment. If you didn't get that already from my introduction, that's the first point. We cannot know the precise moment. Verse 36 Verse 36 says, But of that day and hour knoweth no man, no, not the angels of heaven, but my Father only. So when you hear some preacher on the radio or on TV predicting the day when Jesus is coming, he is preaching contrary to the Word of God. This verse plainly says that no one will know the precise moment of Christ's return. No one can know the day or the hour. The best we can do is read the signs of the time and conclude that they, we may be coming very near to the end of the age. But even then, we can't be certain. If anyone tells you that they have pinpointed the year or the month or the day, do not believe him. The person is either a false prophet or a seriously deluded Bible student. Jesus strictly forbids setting dates for his return. Now, as much as we might like to know when Christ will return, it's better that we don't know. You see, if we knew the precise date, it would tend to give us a proud and arrogant uh, life because we would possess knowledge that others do not have. You say, oh, not me. I wouldn't be proud. Well, that's a pride 
prideful statement right there. The person, that person is, uh, is, is being spiritually lazy. Most of us tend to put things off until the last minute, right? For instance, let's say that my wife goes off to the Twin Cities once again to take care of some grandkids for a few days, and I stay here in Spooner. I could live in bachelor's paradise. I could eat ice cream for breakfast, cookies for lunch, and cake for supper. Mmm. Wouldn't be great. I could leave the dirty dishes on the coffee table or in the sink. I could leave my dirty clothes lying on the floor. I didn't, wouldn't have to make my bed. But then there would be the day she would come home And then I would have to work furiously to get everything cleaned up. And if I didn't know when she would arrive, well, I'd better get up earlier in the morning and get the house cleaned up, right? So we don't know and we can't know the precise time. But of this much we can know for sure. Jesus is coming again to this earth. You can take that to the bank. His return is more certain than the existence of the universe. Heaven and earth may pass away, but His words, we read, which in this context mean the announcement of His return will never pass away. We can trust Jesus Christ to keep His word. He is coming back. Secondly, the world will be completely unprepared. Look at verse 37. Through 39. But as the days of Noah were, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the, day, in the days that were before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark, into the ark, and knew not until the flood came and took them all away, so shall also the coming of man, Son of Man be. Here, Jesus makes a very simple comparison. As it was in the days of Noah, so it shall be when Jesus returns. Now, what was it like in Noah's day? Well, it was business as usual. While Noah patiently built the ark, and he warned men of coming judgment, they laughed at him and they said, it'll never happen. Noah's day was like our days. The age of skeptical unbelief and casual unconcern. The more Noah preached, the more his contemporaries mocked, and they refused to believe that anything like a worldwide flood was possible. And the notion was so ridiculous that they could not take him seriously. And so for years and years, life continued without a change, eating, drinking, marrying, giving in marriage. With all with each passing day, old Noah looked more like a fool than the day before. But finally, the heavens opened and the rains came down. And when Noah entered the ark, I'm sure his friends began to pound on the door and say, Noah, we're sorry. You were right and we were wrong. Open up, let us in. But it was too late. Verse 39 says, And knew not until the flood came and took them all away. Think of it. An entire generation wiped out by the hand of God. One moment you're sitting down to eat supper, the next minute your home has been washed away. 
Perhaps you're at work in the field and then suddenly the field disappears under a wall of water. Where once was a world, suddenly the world knew, uh, you knew was perished under the waves of water. And it happened so suddenly that no one except Noah and his family were ready. Out of the whole world, eight people, only eight people were saved. Everyone else perished as the floodwaters rolled across the surface of the earth. And this is what Jesus said would the second coming be like for an unbelieving world. It would be business as usual until the very day Jesus returns. And just as the pre-flood world did not believe Noah, even so today's world mocks the idea that Jesus shall return. They call it a myth, a legend, a nice fairy tale. But they don't believe it. They don't believe it will really happen. And just as the flood brought sudden judgment to the world, the return of Christ will do the same. And when the waters came, the unbelievers were taken in sudden death. So only Noah and his family were left. When Jesus returns to the earth, unbelievers once again will be taken in death and judgment and only believers preserved by God. And just as the ark saved Noah, even so Jesus Christ is the ark of safety for those who believe in him. Now Jesus tells us that this present age will come suddenly. going to be a dramatic judgment, a complete and final separation of the saved and the lost, and the world will not expect it and will therefore be completely unprepared. And we should learn from this that the world will not be converted before Christ returns. While it is true that the gospel is going forth in more places and in more languages than ever before, it is also true that persecution and anti-Christian hostility is also on the rise. And this should not surprise us. In 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse Two, it says, for men shall be lovers of their own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, without natural affection, truth, truth breakers, false accusers, incontinent, fierce, despisers of those that are good, traitors, heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasure than, more than lovers of God. In the last days, there will be an outbreak of evil unmatched in world history. And to say this is not to be, is not being pessimistic, it's being realistic. Verse 40 and 41 says, Then shall two be in the field, and one shall be taken, the other left. Two women shall be grinding at the mill, and one shall be taken, and the other left. Now, here we have verses that make it sound once again like they're referring to the rapture. But the context here is that of the second coming of Christ to the earth, and I believe we can certainly apply the principle of one leaving and one being left at the rapture, but that's not the interpretation or meaning of this passage. There are workers, there are families and friends who, where one is saved and the other is lost, and when the Lord comes in the rapture to catch us away, There will no doubt be those who will be left, those who will leave with the Lord. Rather, this picture is actually the removing of from the earth by judgment those who will not enter into the millennial kingdom. 
That's the interpretation, but we can certainly apply it to the rapture which is coming. It comes whenever Christ decides it's going to come. The world is unprepared, but we should be be prepared. Notice also another principle that we can apply to pre-rapture rather than as well as to the post-rapture time. Christ may return at any moment. Look at verse 42 through 44. It says, Watch therefore, for you know not what hour your Lord doth come. But know this, that if the goodman of the house hath known in what watch the thief would come, he would have watched and would not have suffered his house to be broken up. Therefore, be ye also ready, for in such an hour as ye think not, the Son of Man cometh. Now, the word watch there is a very important word. It has a little different meaning from watching that the child of God does while waiting for the rapture. The word watch here referring to Christ's second coming after the tribulation, has a little bit different meaning than the word watch and waiting for the rapture. Today we have a comforting hope. Remember what Paul said in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and when he is talking about the catching away of saints to meet the Lord in the air? What's the last thing he says in that chapter? He says, wherefore, what? Comfort one another with these words. We have a comforting hope. It's a great comfort to know that Jesus will come back at any time and take us to be with Him in heaven. In that future day, after the tribulation, after we're gone, the watching is going to be in fear and anxiety. You you and I should not be fearful the fact that Jesus might just come down right now and take us to be with Him. That should be a wonderful comfort to us. But in that day, it's going to be in fear and anxiety. In the night they will say, Would to God it were morning. And in the morning they will say, Would to God that it were evening. Today we are going to wait and long for His coming. In the future day... They will watch with anxiety and fear for His return. Now you might think this is kind of getting technical, but in the Greek language there are many, as many as eight different meanings for the word watch. And we have just one word in our English language, and it has several meanings itself. I came across this illustration about three men watching. I think this kind of helps to explain it. The first man... He goes deer hunting. I know this is dear to your hearts, right? Deer hunting. It's going to be that season pretty soon. I don't want you to get too excited here. Because I know some of you can hardly wait for deer season. But this man goes into the woods at the same spot every year. He gets up early in the morning. He climbs up into his deer stand and he waits and he watches. And after a while, he hears a noise in the brush, and he thinks it might be a deer, and he lifts up his rifle, and he waits. He's watching for a deer. Then there's a man who's downtown on the street corner, and you see that he's looking intently down the street. You know, he's waiting for someone. You know who he's waiting for? His wife. 
He says, I'm waiting for my wife. She's 45 minutes late. You see, he's also watching for a deer. But it's a different deer, and he's watching in a little different way. The first man was in his tree stand, had his deer rifle with him, and maybe this man wishes he had a deer rifle, but it's against the law to shoot his wife. So even if she is late, but he's watching. And he's watching in a different way. Maybe a month or two later, you go to the hospital and you pass a room and you see a man and his wife sitting by the bedside of a little child. And the child has a burning fever and the doctor has been told, has told them that the crisis will come about midnight. And they are there watching. Listen, this is a different kind of watching than the watching for a deer or waiting for your wife on the corner, isn't it? And I think it will be somewhat like the same feeling as they watch for the Lord's coming in fear and anxiety. Look at verse 43. It says, But know this, that if the goodman of the house hath known in what watch the thief would come, he would have watched and would not have suffered his house to be broken up. Therefore be, also, be ye also ready, for in such an hour as ye think not the Son of Man cometh. How does a thief come to your house? He comes suddenly and unannounced. After all, if you knew that the thief was coming at 3.15 a.m. on Thursday morning, you would be ready for him, right? But you know what? Thieves rarely call ahead and make appointments. They rarely say, I'll try to be there about 3.15, but it might be closer to 4 because we've got two or three other houses to, to rob that night. But if, it would really help if you would just pile up the stuff in the middle of the floor so you don't have to, we don't have to go through all your drawers and, and, and try to look for the stuff. And if you don't mind leaving the door unlocked, that would really save us some time. Never happens that way, does it? Suppose that thieves were working in your neighborhood. How would you protect yourself against them? Oh, you would lock the doors. You would close the windows. You would set the burglar alarm. You would call a security service. You might even get a hungry Doberman. And if you're real brave, you might take the vice president's Advice and get a 12-gauge double-barreled shotgun so you can give the burglars a couple of personal greetings. Shoot off a couple of. Now after you do all that, the burglars probably won't come for many nights. In fact, you probably don't need these precautions for 999 days, but day 1,000 you'll be glad you were ready. And the Lord is giving us some parables here to illustrate the attitudes of people to his coming and what will happen when he comes. Again, this is, certainly applies to the Jewish converts here in our passage in that, in that day in the future. They must be ready for the Lord's return. For us who are waiting for the rapture, the instruction is the same. We must be ready. We don't know the day or the time or the hour. Jesus could come maybe today. There's one other principle here, and I think instruction that we need to look at, and that is be faithful to assigned tasks. Be faithful. 
Verse 45. Who then is a faithful and wise servant, whom his Lord hath made ruler over his household to give them meat in due season? Blessed is that servant whom his Lord, when he cometh, shall find so doing. Verily I say unto you, that he shall make him ruler over all his goods. But, and if that evil servant shall say in his heart, My Lord delayeth his coming, and shall begin to smite his fellow servants, and to drink, eat and drink with the drunken, the Lord of that servant shall come in that day, when he looketh not for him, and in the hour that he is not aware of, and shall cut him asunder, and appoint him his portion with the hypocrites. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Once again, The immediate context of our passage here is talking about the converted Jews during the tribulation, or after the tribulation. Actually, during the tribulation, watching for His coming. And yet, the principle for believers in that church age, in this church age which we live now, is to be watching and waiting for the rapture. The emphasis I want you to see here is that the parable says it's for the faithful and wise servant. The situation is of a wealthy landowner who has committed the care of his estate to a servant. His duty was to wisely and properly administer his master's affairs in his absence, not knowing when he would return. And so Jesus suggests two alternatives for this situation. In the one, the servant wisely administers the affairs of the master, anticipating his soon return. In the other, the servant foolishly abuses his privilege, thinking his Lord is long in coming. And this parable reflects the attitude of some people in the future day. They will say, well, the Lord delays his coming, so I'll just go living on living carelessly. When Christ returns, his, uh, he will judge that man. This is a great principle that applies to every age. You and I ought to live our lives in light of the fact that we stand in the presence of, of Christ. Notice, I didn't say we live in the light of the coming of Christ. But we live in light of the presence of Christ. Regardless of whether Christ comes a hundred years from today or a thousand years, you and I are going to stand in His presence. Whether you're saved or lost, you're going to stand in His presence. If you're saved, you will give an account of your life and to see if you receive a reward. If you're lost, you will stand there to be judged. And so every person should live his life in the light of the fact that he's going to stand in the presence of the Lord. That is the great emphasis of this section of Scripture. And so I believe it has an application to us, although the interpretation is specifically to people living at the time of Christ's return as king. Listen, we need to be faithful today. And you'll be ready today. Be faithful tomorrow, and you'll be ready tomorrow. Be faithful next week, and you'll be ready next week. Be faithful next year, and you'll be ready next year. And here's the biblical balance for all of us as we await the return of the Lord. Live as though He might come today. Plan as though He won't return for a thousand years. Maybe today. Are you ready? Now why should we, or what should we do 
to be ready for his return? Well, Matthew 24 has the answer. Live each day as though it's going to be our last. Because one of these days you're going to be right. Be faithful to do each day what God has given you to do. And if Jesus comes back on that day, you'll be ready to meet him. There's an old fable about a time when Satan was training three apprentice devils. He asked the first one how he proposed to deceive people. And he said, I will tell them there is no God. He said, that'll never work. Everybody knows there's a God. The second one volunteered. He would tell people there's no hell. That will never work. Everybody knows there's there's a hell. And the third apprentice spoke up. I will tell them there is no hurry. And Satan smiled and said, you're going to deceive millions. And that is indeed one of Satan's chief tactics. He wins multitudes by convincing them there's no hurry. You have plenty of time to think about God, plenty of time to come to Christ, plenty of time to be forgiven, but it's not true. Today is the only day you have. And we don't know if we have the rest of this day. It may be the only day we ever have. So there's never a better time to be right with God. And if you're not saved, to come to Christ. And believe Him as your Savior today. Let's bow our heads in prayer.